Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you be shocked to learn that American institutions and citizens have been the subject of directed and purposeful manipulation? Would you be surprised to learn that American media is nothing more than the mouthpiece of a handful of corporations that carefully craft what people think is news? Would you be dismayed to hear that our cherished freedom, in the context that the Founding Fathers envisioned it, is a mirage? Do you know that if you live in America, you are a subject of the most widespread data collection and surveillance efforts ever known to man? My interview with culture researcher and commentator John Adams is next, here on the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. Remember that your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko. Well, the time has come, the walrus said, to talk of other things, of shoes and chips and ceiling wax and cabbages and kings. My mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. Soaring Eagle Radio. Your host is Mike Spaulding. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged as you consider today's news and Mike's commentary from a biblical perspective. Now, let's join Mike. Welcome to the Soaring Eagle Radio Show. I'm your host, Mike Spaulding. You may subscribe to the show on iTunes. Search for Soaring Eagle Radio. Find us on Facebook, Soaring Eagle Radio, or follow us on Twitter at Soaring Eagle Rad. You can visit our website as well www.soaringeagleradio.com America has been referred to as the great experiment, as America the beautiful, as America land of the free, and even as America a shining example of liberty. How does all of this line up with what we are witnessing today in America? Do these descriptions still apply if they ever really did? How are we to understand the present turmoil seemingly on every front in America? Friends, have you ever considered that culture is created? The way we think, feel, and behave has been meticulously planned and through a variety of stimuli, events, and even tragedies, an envisioned culture has been brought to fruition. Here to discuss this idea of culture creation is John Adams. John is a host on the popular drive time podcast Afternoon Commute Hoaxbusters and is a culture researcher and commentator. Welcome to the Soaring Eagle Radio Show, John. Thank you. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, John, and I very much appreciate you joining me uh, for this episode of uh, Soaring Eagle Radio. Your research uh, is very, very interesting to me. Some of the things that you've learned and found out, and and I've listened to uh, many of your shows, are very informative. What I've laid out here today, uh, some will consider to be bold or even outlandish claims concerning the reality of life in America. I imagine that some people, in fact, will dismiss you and me and this whole conversation as nonsense, but I'd like to remind our listeners of one of my favorite rejoinders, and that is this, quote, your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko, end quote. 
It's really my way of saying, check the data. The facts are staring you in the face. John, culture is not an amorphous, unguided process of chance and time. Culture is instead a deliberately and consciously shaped context. Understanding culture in this way assists us in seeing that a series of many steps have been applied to produce the current status of organizations, institutions, fads, trends, and even the individuals that constitute and contribute to them. When we're talking about culture, John, let's start with a definition of culture creation. What do you mean by that when when you use that phrase? Uh, Culture creation, uh, first you'd have to start out like with that you're born into your culture. Um, It's already there when you come out of the womb, and then as you grow up in it, you're not really taught to question where things come from. And your parents weren't taught to question where things come from, and their parents were. And so if you're to take something as simple as television, everybody, you know, since the 1950s, grew up with television. And as they grew up with television, already in the culture, it became a normality. Yes. And television isn't anything but a normality. Mm-hmm. Or, or, any, or it's not natural. Yes. And so... There are, I'd say, 96% of everybody's culture today is completely and totally manufactured. Everything from your emotions, uh, your feelings, uh, your ideas, uh, are implanted into you without you knowing it because you grew up with the culture all around you. It's like you're born into a fog. Mm. And... All of the things that run parallel through culture also run parallel through media. And since we primarily, I think most people would associate culture with media today, Mm -hmm. uh, or or that's where they get their culture from. Yes. Um, You might you might think of somebody as like, oh, I'm 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 part of high culture. I I get my I get my culture from the arts or something. Well, even the arts has uh, themes and memes running through the artwork or, you know, the ballet or whatever it is they want to call it. And, um, but most people get uh, their their idea of culture from uh, movies, television, music, etc. And all of the themes that are running through all of those things are simultaneously just happen to be running through the culture as well. Mm-hmm. And, and we take for granted that that those things are happening organically or by, you know, just magically, I guess, just all seem to simultaneously coincide. And that's not the case. Uh, you can, there are many books uh, written on, the, on this particular subject. And uh, once you've uh, perused a few of those, you'll find out that culture is designed and yeah. planned out. And, and, and just to give you a quick example, is uh, if you were to go to the country of Brazil, uh, just one example, Brazil has a ministry of culture. <laughs> and so if if your culture was something that was happening organically, why would the government need a ministry of culture? That's right. <laughs> That's just an interesting question you might want to ask yourself. Yeah, they, they, they perhaps try to pose it as or, or justify having that ministry of culture as a means to preserve and protect what exists. And actually, it's the other way around, isn't it? They're trying to create. Yeah, and, and you know, that's not to say that organic things can't arise inside of a culture, because they right. do. Yes. But um, what, what you're going to find is, especially um, in America, is what you would call monoculture or homogenization. Mm-hmm. And that happens through mass media. And uh, that's why you see so many of the same... You could drive cross-country and you could find all the same stores um, in California that you could find in Ohio. Yes. Because uh, these are... It's, it's a corporate culture, it's a con- consumer culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not only based around making money... So there, there's something much larger to it. Um, it's basically, some, you know, um, people who are who are involved in a in a culture where um, consuming disposable—I I guess you'd call it disposable culture—also 
um, yes. mm-hmm. where, where, where your entire life is revolved around consuming things, um, you don't really take notice too much as to where those things are coming from. So you don't mind the fact that the corner store, you know, with the mom and pop shop doesn't exist anymore because mm-hmm. it is as long as you're able to get the goods that you want and not even things that you need just the things that you desire that you've been sold mm-hmm. um, through, through the consumer culture as long as you're able to get those things you don't really care where they come from so uh, that's why you see the monoculture the mega corporation uh, culture everywhere yes yeah and isn't it uh it's a good example, I think, uh, speaking about culture this way and it being created and it's, uh, it's a top down kind of thing. Now, to, you did make the point that there are some instances where, um, things in our culture, uh, are organic. But for the most part, it's a, it's a top down thing. And a phrase that came to mind as you were describing that, John, was, uh, life imitating art, uh, we're shown a a preferred uh, view of life, a preferred uh, philosophy or opinion or viewpoint on any particular subject. And uh, what happens through the medium of TV and other uh, medium is that uh, folks begin to adopt that viewpoint. Is, is, isn't that the case? Yes. Um, there was a group of guys, uh, they were called the Frankfurt School, you're not familiar with them, they yes. were philosophers, sociologists, mm-hmm. um, Marxists yes. as well, and um, they were employed by the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, Yes. at some point they came over from Frankfurt, Germany, and what their job was primarily was to disrupt uh, culture through implementing things through the academia, because most people aren't aware of the fact that that when that there's people out there who work for particular institutions that implement things into culture. Yes. And and so that's kind of what they're um, that's kind of what they're bred for in a, in a certain sense when they come up through academia. And it has to do with the study of sociology and uh, you know, the way humans relate to each other and all sorts of things, but it's also to control people. Yes. There's a control factor involved. And so um, when the Frankfurt School came over here uh, and lived in Hollywood, of all places, uh, because that <laughs> would be the main hub of uh, media control at, you know, in the 1940s, 50s, 50s mm-hmm. yes. and still today, um, you could go read the book or, I'm sorry, the essay by Theodore Adorno, who was uh, one of the main philosophers, and not that, and Adorno was a genius. Don't don't get me wrong; he was a very smart fellow, but he doesn't really appear to be, uh, the way that I see it, appear to be doing something altruistic with that knowledge. And and so one of the essays that he wrote uh, was called "The Culture Industry." Now he's hmm. correct that there that there is a culture industry. There, anytime industry is attached to anything, um, it's mostly, you know, about making money. Yes. Um, so you have, and and so he talked about the culture industry. And one of the things he talks about in the essay is that um, that by by that time, I think he's writing in the 1940s, he had already come to the conclusion that the purpose of movies was to give people a blueprint for how their lives were going to be lived. Hmm. And uh, he he even projected, and I'm sure he had insight into this, uh, that soon you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between reality and the movies, and that they would kind of blend seamlessly, you know, into one another. And we actually are starting to see that today. And one of the ways that you actually are able to achieve that um, is what you call vicarious living. Mm-hmm. Yes. And People live vicariously through the through the cult of celebrity and um, through the through their possessions, their possessions, and uh, and um, I guess you to uh, borrow from um, Rogers and Hammerstein, their favorite things mm-hmm. uh, become part of their identity. Mm. Yes, that's right. And you know you lose your 
And in the process, you become controlled by the people who design those possessions. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. An interesting thought came to mind. You were talking about Adorno and, and uh, his understanding. Really, he, he was... Uh, uh, he was a prophet, in a sense, uh, prophesying, giving a prophecy of just how powerful uh, the medium of movie making was to become. And I, I find it interesting. I, w- I was thinking while you were you were talking, John, that um, uh, how interesting that the previews of coming attractions would be little snippets of movies yet to be released. Uh, Whose uh, the sole purpose of that little snippet was to uh, heighten uh, people's interest, to pique their curiosity, and to make them want to see the movie. That seems to be a real uh, brief synopsis of what you've just said about Adorno and uh, the Frankfurt School. Now, Adorno was he? Uh, w- would would you define or describe him as a Fabian socialist? Um, not technically. Fabian uh, socialism is a little bit different um, in the technical sense. It's all the same. All wax, pretty much. Um, I think what, what they were doing um, is him and the guys that he was associated with, they put on airs like they were just Marxists, but yet they had no problem coming and living in Hollywood. So it's already a contradiction in terms of right. um, <laughs> Yeah. Also, they work for a Western intelligence agency. Then you have to ask the question, why would a Western intelligence agency hire Marxist philosophers from a German school? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I said, it's all the same ball of wax. Yes. And, and so uh, when you read the writings of these guys, you, you get the sense of, that they might be, you know, have your best interest in mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. While, while they're doing this, because that's the approach that they're taking and the, the phraseology that they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but their goal is, is primarily to disrupt the current culture. Mm-hmm. Whether that culture is good or not is not the argument. It's right. just the fact that it's going to be disrupted right. and done away with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in the present day, we have current things happening, overthrowing uh, old norms and bringing in what you would call the new normal. Yes. That's an actual uh, phrase mm-hmm. that, that they use, new, new normal. Mm-hmm. And um, the old normals that you believe in uh, will be replaced with new normals. And and they really do kill on the fact that, that people are not going to recognize this. Right. Or, or if they do recognize it, they'll soon get mad, but they'll soon adapt to it, and, and they'll either... One, they'll stay silent about it, not really speak up too much about it because everybody else is adapting to it quite well. Or they're just going to adapt to it and say, well, that's okay, no big deal, because um, everything's fine. Nothing really totally disrupted my life. I still have my TV. I'm still able to drive my car and go to work every day. So mm-hmm. no big deal. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, you, you uh, had brought up to me uh, B.F. Skinner. Yes. And B.F. Skinner was another one of these uh, types, uh, I guess you would call him. He, he was a very strange fellow, um, and he's responsible for the term uh, behavioral psychology. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he, he studies human beings in a particular way that you, you know, would be uh, similar to Ivan Pavlov, which is why you have Bell's school. Mm. Okay? <laughs> Literally, that's why you have a bell in school. Everybody takes for granted the fact that you have a bell in school, um, not because it's telling you when it's time for recess, but it's conditioning you to uh, be a human uh, dog, basically. Mm-hmm. To respond. And so, yeah, to respond to the bell. The bell mm-hmm. means uh, it's time to get up, time to go out of the classroom, or yep. it's time to go into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so those things were not designed with your best interest in mind, no matter how much you uh, would like to believe that. Right. And, and uh, Skinner uh, played a big part in a lot of this as well. And he is primarily, he had a very interesting phrase, very interesting on multiple levels, um, but just on the level that he presented it, he called it shaping behavior. Mm. And, and he is uh, the alleged 
originator of that idea of shaping behavior, what you would call operant behavior, mm-hmm. and it's kind of similar to a Pavlovian style conditioning. Yes. Um, but it's a little bit different because what he found out is is you could you could do what was called a chain chain studying, where um, in, in the Pavlovian studies. Or in the Pavlov studies, he had the, the dog, you know, salivates when you ring the bell and mm-hmm. gets the food. Yes. Right? Uh, um, and that's the simplistic version of it. Right. Um, they don't they don't ever talk about uh, all of the children that he actually experimented on. Um, <sighs> but uh, yeah, There's a reason for but, that, uh, right? Yeah, that's right. That's very suppressed history right mm-hmm. there. But, um, yeah. but B.F. Skinner um, took it even one step further. Um he did weird things uh, like he, he raised his daughter until she was two years old inside of a box. Um, I hadn't read that. Wow. Yeah, it's called the Skinner the Skinner box. People um, people are locked up for things today like that. Yeah, he he had some he had some pretty bizarre ideas, and, and once again, you could actually read his books, and maybe you might even agree with some of the stuff that he's talking about. Um, you might even think, oh, man, this guy's not too bad of a guy. He sounds like a nice guy. Um, but then he starts getting into eugenics mm. and how people's genetics uh, play a part. And, and, and his basic overall uh, theory was that we have no actual free will. Mm. And um, because we have no free will, we are strictly... Um, we are strictly creatures of our environment and our genetic makeup. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, based off of Darwinian evolution, uh, you know, and the, the randomness of, of Darwinian evolution, which is absolute nonsense, right. <laughs> um, we, our genetics and our environment uh, predict exactly how we will respond to certain situations. So based off of this, he came up with what, what was called behavioral psychology, and... Um, where you could, if you could design a culture, then you could actually control the people inside of that culture. And like I said, to a large extent, he is correct because we're seeing that now. We've been seeing it for a very long time. And I don't believe that this idea originated with B.F. Skinner. He was kind of the, uh, a pitch man. Every generation has a pitch man for the same old uh, method of control. And he just happened to be the, the pitch man for his particular generation because, you know, he was uh, plastered all over Time Magazine and Newsweek uh, during his day as being, you know, this genius who thought this up. But, I mean, even even in, in his books, which I've only read two of them, and in uh, the 20 others that he's um, written, he even talks about uh, Plato's Republic and Moore's Utopia oh, as... Mm-hmm as being kind of a model for his idea. So, so like I said, he, he is correct that you can control people through designing a culture, and you can control their behavior, um, but he, he fudged a lot of his uh, things within uh, his theories because there is an element, there still is that element to humans that is unpredictable. And he couldn't come up with a proper explanation as to why that was. He, he said he, he had all of these uh, extra theories based off of why uh, humans didn't respond to certain things. So mm-hmm. he was he was not correct. And, and I think that's one of the uh, main uh, problems that people who want to control other people have is don't actually really know how people are going to respond full heartedly. Right. And I would suggest to the the disciples of Skinner today, because there are many uh, psychologists who practice based on a behavioral uh, framework, and I would suggest to them the reason they can't answer that question, John, is because they've got the wrong worldview. Mankind is much more than what sociologists and psychologists claim or believe that that we are. So Skinner was saying that basically designing a culture is like designing an experiment. Yeah, that's a quote from his book, yep. uh, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, I think the uh, actual quote is uh, a, cult, a culture is very much 
like the experimental space use and the analysis of behavior, both sets of contingencies of reinforcement. A child is born into a culture as an organism is placed in an experimental space. Designing the culture is like designing an experiment. Yes. Yeah. So taking that then, the melding of sociology, psychology, and some other streams of thought, one example of creating culture is the fashion, and I guess we could even say the technology industries. How do trends and fashions and, and the latest have-to-have items, how are those culturally created, John? Well, what, what happens is, is pe- people primarily in, in the, uh, what you call the fashion industry, the music industry, uh, and like you said, the technology industry, on the lowest level, they're motivated by money, okay, yeah. and survival. That that is true. Yeah. Uh, but there is an element to that that is a look, you know, maybe a level of a strata strata up above those people who are motivated by power. Mm. Yeah. And and control. And so we've been bred, for lack of a better word, in um, for for over a long period of time to be. Uh, like I was talking about before, disposable consumers. Mm-hmm. And you see, you associate consuming and convenience with necessity. Right. So, so if, if you see a $300 pair of tennis shoes and everybody in, that you know is wearing those tennis shoes, you need those right. shoes. You don't desire. It, it, it's a desire. Yeah. This has to do with a lot with um, uh, with uh, experimentation uh, in, in psychiatry uh, with Freud initially, um, and Freud being pushed onto the American public as well, um, and his uh, nephew, who took all of the research that was done by Freud, which I, I believe this was the purpose behind Freud, and him, was to find out what people actually desired. And then his nephew was Edward Bernays, who is lauded as the uh, uh, basically the guy who created public relations and yes. the modern-day advertising model. Yeah. Um, well, he just happened to come from the same family as the guy who did all the experiments and finding out what people actually desired. Coincidence, <laughs> of course. Right, just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, they had all this research on on what people desired and what Freud. Uh, found out, allegedly, was that most people just desire to be happy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what they wanted. They, they, most people out there, they, they are not power hungry, they're not power mad, they're not interested in what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. They're just interested in, inter- in being entertained and being happy. Being happy. And I think we, yeah, I think we are actually uh, designed that way. Well, let me ask you something, John, because a thought comes to mind here. I've noticed in the past several years that many commercials on television, they no longer tout their product necessarily. Take an automobile, for example. You're not going to hear about the size of the engine unless it's a pickup truck. Then that commercial might say it's someplace in there. But I've noticed that for car commercials and other things, it's all about creating uh, this image that you will be happy if you have our product. It doesn't talk about performance. doesn't talk about specifications. It just paints this rosy picture that if you want to be satisfied with your life, then you should buy our product. And I think that's part of that is, is uh, uh, what you're talking about here. Uh, Bernays found, and his uncle uh, Sigmund no doubt helped him uh, understand human triggers uh, for emotion and happiness. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. And that's an old, that's an old, old thing that you're, that you're referring to there. Um, it may be more prominently brought out to where, uh, like you said, that the actual uh, necessary information for a product. Uh, is kind of subdued, yes. and the more 
but but yeah, I mean they they started doing that in the uh, 1950s, uh, where they would talk about you know the the the, the I guess you would call the cooler aspects of of, of a of a particular vehicle, mm-hmm. like say uh, this this vehicle is better because it's got bigger tail fins, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, or, yeah. or something like that, and, and so. And uh, how would you, you know, this is a show, show um, you know, a beautiful girl and a nice-looking man, and they're driving down the highway, and it says, this is how you will look in our new car. That's right. Right? That's right. Of course, of course when, when I, I think about how, how I look, I won't look anything like that man, and I That's... won't have that beautiful woman sitting next to me. <laughs> and and so, so people... Um, to get back to the idea of, of, of uh, fashion trends and fads and things of that nature, it, it, it has to do with uh, momentary bliss. Mm. Um, because notice how fast fads and trends come and go. Yes. And they actually used to take quite a bit longer, but not not that much. You know, uh, there, there's a good book, if, if anybody's interested, it's called uh, Only Yesterday. It was written by a guy named Frederick Lewis Allen. He was writing it in the 1930s, and he wrote it about the 1920s. And he wrote about all of the fads and trends that had come and gone uh, just from the switch from the 20s to the 30s. Mm-hmm. And the book is full of fads and trends that had come and gone. So um, we, we've been like this for a long time. Um, but it's accelerating. And the interesting thing about uh, acceleration, uh, another book uh, people might be interested in is the 1971 bestseller Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was promoted at, in that particular era as a techno-prophet. Of course, I don't think he was prophet in the sense of the P-R-O-P-H-E-T. He was more P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> Because that's what he was doing was mm, profiting, but yeah. Um, but yeah, these guys—they're not profits. They're not predicting anything. It's all—it's all mapped out ahead of time. Yes. But one thing he talks about is acceleration um, in society, and and how, and what acceleration does to people psychologically. Mm. And um, it short. What it does is it shortens situations like. You have your everyday, day-to-day situation, but if things appear to be speeding up, like say in the media, how fast does a article or um, or something stay in the news cycle? Right. Um, news cycles turn over really quickly nowadays, and yeah. even back in the '70s, they they turned over pretty pretty quickly um, from just the time period before. Uh, this changes your behavior. It, it speeds you up psychologically to where now you're dealing with things at a faster pace. Mm-hmm. Um, more in, more information. Um, talk about weaponized information where yes. uh, what you would call an info bomb mm-hmm. hits you with so much information all at once you're not able to absorb it all. That's right. But yet it, it's been absorbed by the subconscious and it's passed through the news cycle or it's passed through time and... And so you kind of look at it. you don't absorb the information, information, but you know that it's past. You know that it's old now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's an impression that they intentionally created. Yes, and 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 you were talking about images. Well, mm-hmm. images uh, have been used for quite a long time to convey uh, messages, mm-hmm. and. And so um, there's a lot of information in an image that your brain doesn't pick up consciously, but it picks up subconsciously. And so when when girls, teenage girls, are seeing, um, you know, Kim Kardashian on television, and and they're watching these television shows, you know, I mean, this has been around for a long, scantily clad women have been on television for a very long time. Right. Um, there is an impression made on them just by the image, okay? Yes. And it's affecting you, and it's affecting you either one way or the other. Well, you, you're either, maybe uh, you don't like that particular image, or maybe you do, and, and you decide you want to model yourself after that particular image. Well, see, the culture creators have 
mapped out how people are going to respond one way or the other. They know ahead of time that there are certain people who are going to resist certain things, and they're not going to like it at first. Okay? So there's all sorts of, as you, as you said, triggers for certain things. If they want to trigger a response, that could, they, they might even want a negative response to something. Be done through imagery, okay? Yes. And imagery, uh, like I said, it, it, it's very powerful. You, you just have to see a picture in a newspaper or a magazine, uh, the image of something on television. You don't even need a caption. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and telling you what's going on, and and you can come to a particular conclusion based mm -hmm. off of just what you see with the image. Yeah. For our listeners, John, let me let me interject this. By way of explanation, John said sometimes uh, triggers are used to elicit uh, negative reactions or negative responses. Uh, let, let me break that down just a little bit. I, I, I think what, what John is talking about there is purposeful manipulation, which, which all of this is. But uh, in this particular context, I think that's uh, um, done for a negative uh, response or reaction intentionally so that then that group of people who are resisting can be vilified. And uh, that goes on a lot uh, in our media today. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the negative, they, they definitely look for a negative response because you have to understand something, too, is that in order to move an agenda forward, you need opposition. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Opposition is imperative to moving an agenda forward because without the opposition to something, the opposition provides reinforcement to the people who are in favor of something. Mm -hmm. So it is just how you how you said um, the opposition reinforces the people's belief in whatever it is that they're doing. So if you know, take any topic of the of the current you know, ridiculousness all over television and news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Apply, apply what you would call, you know, uh, the dialectic process of, of, um, synthesis, mm -hmm. antisynthesis, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, an, uh, thesis, thesis, antithesis results in a synthesis. That's correct. That is correct. I had, I had a, little senior moment there in my, uh, <laughs> near, and I'm only almost, I'm only near 40 <laughs> well you know what let me let me read you something out of a book that is a very rare book and see if I uh, this is something you might find interesting here okay this book is uh, like I said it's a rare book it's called cultural patterns and technical change and it was put up by the United Nations Education, uh, uh, UNESCO. Oh boy. Okay. That's frightening already, just knowing who the publishers are. Yeah, and it was edited <laughs> by good old Margaret Mead. Oh boy. Um, wow. So l let me, let me read you this, and, and this should be very interesting to someone who might not really take to what we're saying right mm -hmm. now, okay? Okay. It seems painfully evident that most miserable living conditions from the viewpoint of industrial nations do not of themselves make technical improvements acceptable, nor make disruption and maladjustment less likely when change is introduced. Over and over again, we see that attempts to remedy such conditions chiefly by knowledge and logic, as seen by the agents of change, fail. Those failures can be better understood if it is recognized that explanation and logical interpretation alone are often ineffective in changing behavior because their application is blocked by the emotional satisfaction which the individual achieves through his present mode of life. The new knowledge can be put to use only as the old behaviors, beliefs, and attitudes are unlearned and the appropriate new behaviors, beliefs, and attitudes mm. are learned. Yeah. There it is in it a nutshell. It goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But I, but I won't read any more from that. But yeah, it goes on and on, and it's uh, it's, it's a doozy. Let me tell you that. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that this basically is a handbook for change agents for people mm -hmm. who are um, 
providing cultural change to said culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. You see? Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, let's uh, let's apply all this for our listeners. There, I, I know that there will be some who say, "Oh, you know, this this sounds great. All this theoretical and psychological and philosophical, and but what does it really all mean?" So, let's apply this to some of the things that we're seeing in in uh, in America today. To what I would consider to be some very weighty matters and issues, and let's start by talking about the family. Clearly, the family has undergone a tremendous upheaval to the extent that what was once lauded as the very foundation, strength, and fabric of society has been systematically destroyed by cultural designers. How in the world has this happened? How have we got to the place where a two-parent, mother-father, and children household is looked at with scorn? Where did the unraveling begin? It's hard to say exactly where it began. I guess you could say in the modern times, um, after World War One is a good place to start. Um, 1920s uh, really was very uh, disruptive time time period. As much as I enjoy uh, old time music like jazz and um, things of that nature, you know, old rock and roll, yeah. it was culturally created and designed to disrupt the previous type of person who existed in another time period. And so if you think of the 1920s, uh, just an example that um, I, I myself never even thought about until it was pointed out to me by uh, another researcher, was that, you know, women in the 1900s wore skirts down to their ankles, and in no time at all, once the World War One was over, uh, women were wearing skirts above their knees. Mm-hmm. Um you have a division, a purposeful division uh, between adults and children that has been taking place since the late 1940s. Um, something came, uh, a phrase came into the culture in the late 1940s called young person. Yes. Okay. Before there used to be only adults and children. Okay? <laughs> yes. That was it. That was subtly was slipped in, wasn't it? Yes. Then there was young person. And so young person... Um, morphed into a word that was literally created. I'm not kidding. It was created by uh, you know the Madison Avenue uh, advertising agency called the teenager. <laughs> okay, we take that word for granted these days, but teenager uh, was specifically designed for someone between the ages of 13 and 19, and it was then from then on classified as an age group. Now, today, we have what are called tweens. Right. <laughs> and post-teens. Uh. Okay, so you have the uh, arrested development uh, male, <laughs> the arrested development female, mm-hmm. who lives with their parents till they're 30 years old, and mm-hmm. um, those type of things. And, and so what you could look, down, look at it as the breakdown of the family, where a lot of these people... Uh, have had less and less children as time went on. Um, you know, back in the late 1800s, the 1900s, uh, even into the 1920s, people had large families. Mm-hmm. Right. And then by the time the 1950s came around, people were only having three children. Well, that was a cultural design because they told you that the nuclear family was uh, the thing to be. You moved away from your extended family, you moved out somewhere... Um, when the extended family used to be primarily uh, included in the family. Yes. And, um, for our for our listen, so- John. For our listeners, let me let me just say this uh, uh, to to take into consideration what John is saying and the impact that that has had uh, on us today. Consider this thought: uh, if someone has four children or more. I mean, uh, or, or even consider six or seven children today, one of the first things that they're going to be asked is, are you Roman Catholic? Or, or maybe if you live out west, are you Mormon? Because people right. with, with, with lots of children, well, they must be religious because nobody does that, right? So that's an assumption that people are making today, to your point, John. That's correct. And uh, I am one of five children, and I used to frequently get 
get asked if I was Mormon or uh, <laughs> uh, Catholic uh, when I was growing up. Yes. And and so so yeah, that's what. Whereas uh, there was a time period when five children wasn't enough. That's correct. That's right. So, <laughs> well, they had farms, and they needed, uh, you know, a lot of yeah, work. And, and, uh, yeah, that's right. And, and another thing, too, was um, by the time the 1950s rolled around, uh, culture and, and life in and of itself had dramatically changed and dramatically shifted. That's when the uh, consumer-based society really kicked off. We had what was referred to as a... Um, a military-industrial complex really had mm. arisen out of World War II. Yes. Uh, it, it was primarily always in place, but it really came to the forefront where we had what was called a war-based economy. Yes. And um, and so people were constantly making things for the production of war. Mm-hmm. Um, also, on top of that, the, you know, the consumer goods society arose out of that as well, where... Uh, People not only produced things that they themselves bought, but like I said before, their identity became wrapped up in the things they produced and purchased. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, it, it didn't seem foreign to them, and and now to, uh, still to this day, because we don't even produce the things we purchase anymore. Um, right. That's right. Uh, people's identities are tied up with that. So it's the same thing with the nuclear family, which was pushed on an entire generation of people. Only have, you separate from your extended family. You only have three children, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they gave you the uh, image of the immigrant, right, who is who is uh, going to be demonized. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and only immigrants had more than uh, three children. Right. Yes. And, and uh, what they did was, is they scared everybody out of having more than three children. I think, oh, look at the poor, downtrodden immigrant. The reason they can't make their way up in society is because they have so many children. Mm. Psychological and manipulation. Econ- yeah, and they economically cannot survive. Mm-hmm. And see, one of the goals that you'll find out by reading a lot of these people, like C.F. Skinner, and like uh, many other people of that ilk, is that there's too many people on the planet, and we need to uh, get rid of a lot mm, of them. That's and right. we need to make sure that people stop having children. Well, what do you have today? You have people who not only do they not have children, but they don't even get married. Right. Yeah. And it's an, ep- it's an epidemic, and I will mm-hmm. say, uh, unfortunately, it even crosses over into the religious realm as well, because even Christians and Catholics and yes. people... Uh, who, be, who believe in it, it? Would be unheard of to be a Christian in previous time periods and not have children. I just, I, I know that for fact. Right, right. You're absolutely right, though, John. I've seen that uh, increasingly uh, in the church, where uh, two, uh, a man and a woman who profess uh, faith in Christ. Uh, have no issue with uh, n- not just not having children, but not even getting married. Uh, living together, they've completely abandoned the idea, the sanctity of uh, marriage, and and the covenant relationship. So, all of that has yeah, certainly. Well, go go ahead, John. Well, quickly, quickly, don't don't misunderstand me. I believe in the institution of marriage between a man and woman, but uh, I do not believe in the in the uh, current idea of what marriage is, where you ask the state permission. <laughs> get married and then you go get a license you gotta remember mm-hmm. a license is something you get a license to do something that outside of having that license would mm-hmm. be illegal yes <laughs> right that's kind right. of like a, a driver's license why mm-hmm. would i need a license to marry my wife it doesn't make any sense right um unless you know that the state wants to have their hand in everything that you do yes so yes i am against the idea of, of uh, what you would call institutional marriage but mm-hmm. not necessarily against the idea of the Yes, correct. Yeah. I think some of that's coming to a head now, too, with, uh, uh, as you said, the the whole, well, the marriage license was sold originally as a way to make sure that uh, your spouse was co- uh, uh, covered in the, in the case of, of death for insurance purposes, 
uh, for uh, title property deeds, uh, all of these kinds of benefits. That's why it was a good thing to do. It was never presented as uh, because we will decide who will be married or not. It was never given in that context. But I think in the current climate that we live in, uh, I can see a day when that's coming. And uh, there is a movement afoot uh, among some of the pastors that I talk to um, where we are going to perform uh, marriage ceremonies, but we're not going to do it under the authority of the state, and we're not going to sign off on licenses and that type of thing. So we're going to get completely away from that. So the family, um, we, we were talking about the, the changes that the family has undergone. So how, how did we get to this place then where uh, we've gone from uh, a mother and a father to now we've got it's uh, perfectly normal and natural and, and celebrated to have two fathers and two mothers in the picture? Like I said, there's all sorts of new normals that are introduced all over the place, and it doesn't even have anything to do with the people necessarily um, who you might disagree with their uh, particular lifestyle. Right. Um, their lifestyle primarily has been sold to them through their culture as well. Yes. And uh, like I said, uh, you could refer to the book uh, by Alvin Toffler, Future Shop, where he actually talks about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. and how, how lifestyles are going to be a fad. And um, people will have these interchangeable lifestyles where they'll try them on like, you know, a new pair of pants every day. And so we, we see a lot of that currently. And there is a push to, you know, um, to change the normality of what we tend to think of as normal. Mm-hmm. And like I said, uh, I don't I don't really get into the whole idea of you know, judging people based off of their lifestyle uh, choices. None of my business, I, and I personally don't even really care uh, what someone else is doing. Um, but I know what normal is. <laughs> and I know that it's not normal to live with or to, you know, engage in a lifestyle with someone of the same sex. It's not normal. Mm-hmm. Whether whether it's uh, good or bad is, I'm just being objective on that particular issue. Yeah. Whether, if I, and if I remain objective on it, I can just see, well, it's not normal. <laughs> so no matter how much <laughs> you tell me that this is a new normal, it's yeah. still not normal. Right, right. Yeah, Based you can, yeah. Alone, I know that societies don't really function too well when there aren't normality. Right. And whereas I think to a certain extent, there's always room for abnormalities. But when a society gets enveloped by complete and total abnormality, it turns into a hedonistic society. Yeah. And the best type of society to rule over is a hedonistic society, because you have people who are constantly distracted by <laughs> things that are of no matter. That's right, yeah. And, um, and just to uh, elaborate, yeah. just to elaborate a little bit on your point, John, okay. what, what what you were saying there, is that and, you you, and so, uh, you can oppose a... What's that? I was just saying, I, I was going to elaborate a little bit on the point that you were making, is that you you can objectively look at a lifestyle and uh, determine that it's it's uh, detrimental to um, good health. It's detrimental to the the furtherance of a family or society, and you can do that uh, based on all kinds of factors. And uh, one of them, which is not uh, any kind of religious belief system. Uh, you don't need a religious belief system to look at a lifestyle and say this has all kinds of negative consequences uh, as a result of it, and it would be unwise to pursue it. Um, and yet, in our culture today, 
alternative uh, lifestyles or the new normal, as you've described it, John, that is billed, uh, defined, celebrated as progress, as being very progressive. And that's that's become a good thing in the eyes of many people. How in the world do uh, abnormalities or things that have detrimental impacts on people as individuals and families as a as a unit, how can that be defined as progress? Uh, the co- I'm, I'm going to redirect your question. Okay. And I do this slightly uh, facetiously. <laughs> uh, what is progress, Mike? Exactly. <laughs> uh, that, that's a very where, good... When, when, when somebody tells you that something is progressive, do they have the definition to back it up that it actually is progress? That's right. Well, when okay, so let me answer your question as what, I think we, the culture would. Pro- yeah. yeah. What are we progressing toward? That's right. There's this this kind of uh, ambiguous, uh, ubiquitous idea of enlightenment and progress is uh, striving to become more enlightened. Now that answer, now that opens up a whole other box, though, doesn't? Because well, what does it mean to be enlightened? The, the, the real yeah. point here, John, I think that you're driving at is that we're being given the definition of these things. We're not coming up with these on our own. They're not empirically uh, verifiable because they, we've lived it and experienced it. And yes, I know this is true. This is progress. Be- no, we're being given these definitions. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I don't even know that we're actually being given the definition. It's just kind of force-fed to us and with no definition, mm-hmm. and and you're going to accept it or you're going to be, quote-unquote, old-fashioned. Ah. And, and so, uh, yeah, there, there is no defining uh, progress today. Mm-hmm. There never was, really. Yeah. I mean, what was, what, was the idea, what was the idea behind, um, I mean, you could look at all of the so-called progress that we've made. Um, over centuries, and if it's le- if all of that was leading up to man um, merging with machine or becoming some sort of uh, bisexual hermaphrodite in the end, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, what then? What good was building all of those railroads? Yeah, because because that's the that's the progress we're sold. Mm-hmm. We're sold that the progress. Uh, uh, conquering the West and building the railroad is uh, exactly the same progress as today as merging uh, technology with man and uh, becoming this um, intersexual being that yeah. uh, or trans transgender trans racial trans mm-hmm. everything yeah and, and this is all this is all built off of uh, once again people love utopias. Yes. They love living right. for something that will never exist. It's just never going to exist. They, they live for a dream. They have an image that's been implanted in them of, of something that is to come, and it never actually materializes. Yeah. And it actually ends up being detrimental. And like I was saying before, the easiest people to rule, if you want to be a tyrant, mm-hmm. are the people who are distracted, mm-hmm. dumbed down, and uh, who are whose most the most important things in life to them are living vicariously through uh, somebody else like celebrities, mm-hmm. and and they're more involved about uh, I want to know who's having sex with who than even knowing what's going on in their daily life mm-hmm. with their own family. Yes, uh, but but they won't have to worry about that very long because eventually we're not going to have families, and that's the goal because. Eventually, there's only going to be enough people on the planet to just kind of flip levers. Yeah, yeah. Well, one yeah. example, John. Let's let's talk about this for a moment, if we could. One example of progress as as a as an empty, vacuous concept is this idea that uh, so-called re- reproductive rights are progress within the context of women's rights, abortion and birth control. Those things aren't even really about women's rights, are they? They never were. Uh, even in the beginning, the two were never even connected. 
women, women's uh, the women's rights movement. Um, basically, had to do. Uh, it's interesting, even if you go back to the original uh, women's rights movement, it was it was based around eugenics. That's right. Okay, and, and so so eugenics. Uh, for people who don't know what that is, it's, it's that you're going to breed the right kind of people, mm-hmm. and those are the people who are basically going to rule the world mm-hmm. at some point. Right. If there's enough breeding of the right kind of people, and so um, and so, you could go into the writings of Margaret Sanger, who mm-hmm. was uh, a racist and a eugenicist. Yes. And you can read her books, and where she's talking about the, the evil blacks. She even had a project called the Negro Project, where she was uh, going into the black, you know, she proposed putting Planned Parenthoods in the black ghettos mm-hmm. for the sole purpose of getting getting rid of the black population because she thought it was a scourge on society. Mm-hmm. And uh, it works because uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a large percentage of black babies are aborted every year. Yes, and have been for a very long time. And so, um, and that's not to say that the white population hasn't been, uh, had detrimental effects from playing parenthood as well. But you see, you equate that with women's rights, or it's the, women, it's the woman's right yes. to abort her baby. But we're not aware of the real background purpose of it mm-hmm. was to, was for population control. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, folks will, will know this name, obviously, but, one of uh, Margaret Sanger's um, biggest advocates, and uh, I think it's fair to say a disciple in in the context that he took uh, her philosophy and uh, worldview concerning eugenics and applied it to an entire nation, and then his worldview and uh, his worldview included the conquest and the establishing of a master race that'd be Adolf Hitler. And, and Sanger even wrote letters to Hitler saying uh, that he, he thought he was a good guy and mm-hmm. he was doing a good thing. So yeah. Um, so yes, that's an old that's an old thing. I mean, eugenics comes from the yeah. Greek. It comes it, you, you meaning good, genetic meaning gene, the good genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plato talks about eugenics in, in the Republic. It's, a, it's an old idea, yeah. and lots of people have uh, tried over centuries to implement it and in different uh, areas of culture and um, unfortunately it's working yes that's right why is it that uh, so many people are oblivious uh, to this john the real roots and history of uh, birth control the the purpose the design behind it uh, abortion uh, I mean, I understand that that these these things have been repackaged and presented, uh, you know, uh, as a as a nice looking bow wrapped gift, and uh, every progressive uh, woman who's interested in in asserting her rights should be in favor of these things. But why is it that the that the uh, nation as a whole has bought into this line that clearly is a lie? Well, like I said, when you design a culture, there's uh, certain things people are taught with certain things people aren't taught. Mm-hmm. And the histories of things get buried in, you know, in the dust that's left behind of the previous generation. And there was, at one time, people did kind of get wise to eugenics for a little bit and mm-hmm. kind of you know, not want to be involved with it, but uh, it was quickly repackaged and renamed. And if you go into the writings of Julian Huxley, who was the brother of Albert Huxley, who wrote uh, Brave New World, which some people tend to think that Brave New World was some sort of, uh, you know, prophecy again. Uh, but it actually was a blueprint. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> um, yeah, and his brother Julian started UNESCO, which we just read from a, a book from UNESCO. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually coined the term transhumanism. Mm, yes. And and so he coined that term. And today we hear transhumanism lauded all over. Everyone from yes uh, scientists to the Mormons uh, love transhumanism. That's right. Yes. And and uh, the Mormons actually have a transhumanist association, an, an officially church recognized group. That is correct. Mm-hmm. And, and the uh, 
And so, yeah, transhumanism was coined by Julian Huxley, who himself was an outspoken eugenicist before he, he actually wrote in papers. He said, yeah, we, we need to change the name of eugenics because that's such a bad uh, connotation associated with it. We just <laughs> nice. have to change it to transhumanism. Mm-hmm. And, and trans, so transhumanism is eugenics. And, and so, uh, you know, people need to realize that when you hear the word transhumanism and that starts popping up everywhere, which it has, mm-hmm. uh, it is eugenics in disguise. Uh-huh. And, and so it's not, it's not a good thing. And, uh, just one, one more, uh, quick thing that I wanted to say here, uh, before I unfortunately have to, uh, go is, uh, you think you're fed all of this stuff through what's called mass media. If you've never heard of mass media, and the homogenizing effect that mass media has mm-hmm. on everybody uh, who's, who's involved with it is, is largely, you're largely unaware of that effect. Yes. Okay? And, and take time out of your life to, to limit your exposure to mass media. Mm-hmm. Music, television, um, all those things that are running concurrently through the mass media and through your culture uh, right now, so they're all giving you the download mm-hmm. and the yes. reinforcement to believe all of the things that you're seeing on the mass media. It's all, it's all reinforcement for you to believe all of those things as being real when they're not real because they didn't exist until the mass media let you uh, that that's exactly right. Well, John, I, I appreciate your time today. Uh, I, I think we have um, uh, enough to do a part two if you're willing to come back on the show at some point here in the next couple of weeks. I'd like to pursue that thought of the media and this, this group think uh, among the media uh, and where they get their marching orders from. Uh, and then I'd like to, like to jump in and talk about... Uh, uh, the war on drugs, the irony of the war on drugs today, uh, where that all came from. and So anyway, lots more topics to talk with uh, John about. John, thank you so much for being on uh, Soaring Eagle Radio. I appreciate it very much. Mike, thank you very much, and I would love to come back on sometime and uh, do another show with you. Well, we'll chat and get that scheduled then. Soaring Eagle Radio is a production of Transforming Word Ministries and is released under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Opening audio montage collection created by Micah 68 Productions. Visit them on the internet, www.mika68.com for more information. Friends, remember the Apostle Paul's admonition to the believers meeting in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm your host, Mike Spaulding. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of Soaring Eagle Radio. Thanks for tuning in today to the Soaring Eagle Radio Program. For more information about the show, write us at Soaring Eagle Radio, 682 West Grand Avenue, Lima, Ohio, 45801. You may also contact Mike directly by email at the following address, Pastor Mike at WOH.RR.com. God bless you today as you seek him. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.